Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, and this is the Better Off Podcast. On today's episode, it's Inauguration Weekend, Million Woman March. And so are you wondering what just happened in that election? We've got 538's Harry Enten. He's going to make sense of the numbers and tell us how statistics can lead us astray. Things weren't developing in the ways that we were used to seeing. And the way that they were developing was in the haves and the have-nots, or the people who perhaps had, but perhaps feared being a have-not. And I think that left us open to not recognizing how strong the movement would be for a Bernie Sanders or how strong the movement would be for a Donald Trump, people who were talking to these financial concerns that a lot of voters had. All that and more on the latest episode of the Better Off Podcast. Welcome to the inauguration edition of the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. I'm your host, Jill Schlesinger. Okay, Better Off, this is the show where we provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and your life. And you know, it is all about inauguration. I decided to geek out a little bit and start to think about the Obama economic legacy I just want to point out a few things. I I kind of look at this as two separate types of um, gradings. One is around just how horrible everything was when he came into office in January 2009. And and so what I look at that is sort of the, the government response to how horrible things were. So you had bailouts, you had regulatory reform, and you had the big stimulus act. Just everyone relax, okay? This is not a political show. I'm just going to try to go by the numbers The bailouts, remember, they happened under President Bush, but obviously President Obama kind of had to continue and enforce those bailouts. If I look at the bailouts, I was definitely a fan of bailing out the big financial institutions because I think that if they had gone broke, we were in for a much longer and deeper recession, probably bordering on a depression. It was long enough. Thank you very much. It wasn't perfect. Uh, I think that taxpayers should have gotten more of the upside. Um, I should mention that all the financial institutions are the major ones repaid the money. And the big flaw that I see in the bailouts is that they really focused on the banks and not the people. And the the Home Affordable Refinance Program, the HARP, just didn't help that much. It was really awful, actually, and hard to navigate. On the regulatory side, we got Dodd-Frank reform, uh, the Consumer Protection Act. It, you know, did some good things. It forced banks to keep more capital on hand. It created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. In my mind, in that moment, that's when the government should have said, hey, you're dealing with any customer. You have to be a fiduciary. We're going to talk more about fiduciary. That's going to be a big theme of this show because fiduciary means you've got to put your client's interests first. And I am a huge fan of the fiduciary standard. So stay tuned. We're going to talk more about that. We could have had that in Dodd-Frank, but they wimped out. Uh, The stimulus, eh, you know, it was okay. It was good. I was glad that we had some money come into the system. It just wasn't as efficient as we would have liked. On the other side of the ledger is sort of the general way that we grade presidents, economic growth. We had a a middling recovery, but, you know, frankly, coming from where we came from, job creation was amazing. We had more than 15 million new jobs, but we still have problems in the labor market. Income inequality, still pretty rotten. Incomes in general have come back well, though, so that's been a nice recent help. Stock market soared. We get that, you know. (laughs) The Dow is at about 8,000 on Inauguration Day 2009, and you know where it is now. It's good to be a long-term investor. That's the lesson there. Housing prices still not looking great. Um, In some areas, awesome. Coasts, you're doing great. 
Um, nationally, we now know that uh, when you adjust for inflation, nationally, home prices still about 15 percent below the bubble peak. That's according to Bill McBride, the guy over at Calculated Risk blog, which is an amazing blog. Okay, so there it is. That is your Obama economic legacy. What does this mean to you? You as a long-term investor, you as someone who sticks to your game plan, you as someone who really focuses on low fees, you as someone who focuses on low taxes, you are not going to get freaked out by each administration's twists and turns. You've got to remain true to your actual game plan. Okay. And we're going to talk about game plans a lot more in this show. Um, Mark, scold- Mark, the best producer in the world, scolded me because he said, you know, you haven't told anyone you're a CFP. It's true. I'm a certified financial planner. I still am. You know why? That test was hard. I'm not giving that up. There's no way. Two-day test, Mark. Failure rate's about 50%. Mark's starting the CFP program. Okay, just outed him. woo I'm a CFP. Why is that important? Because we are going to answer your questions on this program. Okay, and as a certified financial planner, if I don't know the answer myself, I'm going to find people who do. It may be people from our sponsor, Betterment, because they've got a bunch of CFPs over there and might wrangle some of those in to help me answer questions. If you want to ask us a question, send us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com and stay tuned today. This episode, we are going to have our first ever caller. Yeah, this is going to be a podcast with calls. So if you've got a financial question and you want to talk to me about it, just send us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Okay, so we're doing a really fun episode because it is the inauguration. We're talking numbers, we're talking statistics, and we're talking to Harry Enten, the senior political writer and analyst at 538.com. You know what? Those numbers and those statistics, when you throw in a few emotions, you might actually find yourself being led astray. Here's my interview with Harry. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. You're back with Better Off and special guest this episode, 538's senior political writer, whiz kid, Harry oh Enten. I uh, hate that. Isn't that ridiculous? It's, it's, uh, Jody Avergan gave me that. And uh, while the kid perhaps is applicable, the whiz perhaps is not. Well, we'll talk about that. I wanted to have you on the show because we actually share something we do do you know what it is <laughs> i do not I, that was i do not know what it is we do i should have said we do exactly let's start that again we do um i think we both kind of like numbers and we're a little bit like geeky around stats i'd say if if you are i most certainly you am. are right I, I i would say that i spend some hours of which i shouldn't on baseball reference looking up Babe Ruth's OPS plus in 1935. He was a much better ball player than people gave him credit for, even at the end of his career. Yeah, even and and imagine what he would be like if he ever got into shape. Oh. Think about that. And imagine what would be like if I ever got into shape. Oh well, there's there's always time. You're a young man. Okay, you're on the program because we both like statistics. You are a writer. You follow politics. You're part of 538. It's an amazing uh, site, and you gain some notoriety just in terms of your writing and your own uh, podcast uh, talking about the campaign of mm. 2016. Okay, let me just start by saying this. I'm a huge fan, love the podcast, love your writing. What What is it about the statistics around these campaigns that people don't get? Well, I think that the thing that people really didn't get, at least coming out of the general election and the response that we saw was what exactly a probability is and what does it mean, right? 
what is a 71% chance of Hillary Clinton winning? What's a 29% chance of Donald Trump winning? I had people who emailed, you let me down. I trusted you. I, I'm not a priest here. For one thing, I'm certainly not Catholic. But I, I think that people just simply didn't understand what those meant, that 30% things happen all the time. And 70% things often don't happen. Your analysis is based on other polls, right? Correct. We do not conduct our own polls. So you're, you you toss out some that are rotten polls? Well, we don't toss them out, but we weight them down based upon their historical accuracy and other sort of factors. Okay. And so when you, hear, when you got to Election Day in 71-29, how did you take that? Like, what was in your belly? Well, I think that there are two things that were in my belly. Number one... I thought there was a chance Donald Trump would win. But I think also, and this kind of gets back to the point of why people don't necessarily understand probabilities, is it's one thing to understand it in a mathematical and statistical sense. It's another thing to wrap your head around the idea that the former host of The Apprentice, who has no political experience whatsoever, is going to be the next president of the United States. So I think I had those two competing factors in my mind where I understood that he could win, but another part of me is like, oh, it won't happen. Well, and so I think that's so funny because I always think about that even with investing. Like when you, you talk to somebody and you say like, well, this is the probability. So I remember before the election, I had gone on the air, whatever, uh, you know, a couple days before. And um, there was some economic analysis and a bunch of really smart people got together and said, well, based on all these different events that we've seen in the past, we think that if Donald Trump were to win that we could see a 10 to 15% slide in the stock market. Right. Right? Okay. Right. So that's what we would call a tail event, right? Like that would be kind of a crazy thing, sure. right? And and so I talked about that and then got killed the week later because like stocks are up, you're crazy. I said, well, I was right for like three hours that next morning. <laughs> I mean, I mean, from, from 11... Depends how you looked at exactly, it. Exactly. My time horizon, my 11 p.m. to 2 a.m., I was spot on. Beautiful. I, right? And things did turn around. And what is fascinating is sort of like the same assumptions, which is the probability of these things happening is based on the past. And then there is the emotion. And you and you can't quantify the emotion around you, it. You can't quantify the emotion about it. I should say I'm quite thankful that the stock market bounced up. My Ford stock is doing quite well. Um, and so I hope to retire in a few years. Okay. You grew up in New York. Mm -hmm. You go to Dartmouth. I do. Why did you go to Dartmouth? Two reasons. Number one, love snow. Hmm. Hanover, New Hampshire averages between 65 and 75 inches per year. I'm not sure of the exact figure, but it's in that range. Right. And if you're a political junkie and you want to go to a good school with snow, where else would you go than the state of New Hampshire, the first in the nation primary? Although you could have done Iowa and done the caucus thing. I could have done the caucus and thing. And I imagine it snows there. It does snow in Iowa, but I think it's better known for its cold air. Um, and the truth is, look... I'm a Northeasterner. All right. It was enough to move away from New York. I'm going to move to Iowa. This I've been to Iowa. Lovely state. Really? Lovely people. That's good. Um, but the fact is... Too far. It's a little bit of Can't a Can't get a bagel. I know. By I the would, way, you can barely get a bagel in the state of New Hampshire. You can barely get a bagel outside the city of New York. That's a good point. All right. What did you study at Dartmouth? Government. And so where's the stats come in? Well, I mean... There's statistical courses that are taught in the government department, intro yeah. stats, advanced stats. Um, and then I, what I think was unique about my situation was I took those statistics courses that I took and what I learned and then applied them to other subject areas. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I might take a course on 
women and gender studies specifically uh, intro to LGBT studies within that department and then said, okay, I am interested in knowing how accurate polls before same-sex ballot measures are before the elections takes place. And what I learned was that, in fact, oftentimes the anti-gay marriage side or anti-same-sex marriage side did better in the actual results than the polls indicated. And so before Maine's ballot measure in 2009, I was able to say, you know what, the polls are pretty close. My guess is they're going to reject same-sex marriage. And I actually ended up being correct, a time in which a prediction I made was accurate. Um, (laughs) The professor was quite impressed. Uh, So that was the type of thing that I generally did up there. Now, normally, when... uh I'm going to paint a broad brush. Don't, please don't take this. Uh, take, try not to take offense to this. But like the, the nice Jewish boys that I grew up with who are stats heads went to Wall Street. Why not you? Boring. Oh, I love this guy. Boring. I can't stand anything that I find boring for the most part. I, I, I mean, I could do it, but it would just, I wouldn't stick. Right. And why should I go with something I couldn't, you know, stick with? Uh, so I did what I thought was interesting. So when did you graduate from Dartmouth? 2011. Okay. So Feels so long ago. It's unbelievable how young you are. I really, I, I, you could be my child. It's frightening. But what's fascinating, though, is mm. you entered college before the financial crisis began, uh, right on the eve of it. Sure. Yeah. Right? That, that's about right. Right. Uh, right on the eve. And, um, and so did that? shape you in any way like how did you like what was going on for you and like on the campus as the financial crisis was unfolding well i think you know dartmouth is not exactly those poor rich kids their parents losing their jobs and bonuses sure and 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 that and that's definitely the case but i think the way you actually recognize that is obviously not all the students who go to even an elite university or college are from well-off families. Right. There are many of whom who are on financial aid of some sort. And I think that's where you really saw it, where kids perhaps had to work a few extra hours to make sure that their education could be paid for, that perhaps they called up and their father or their mother lost their job or perhaps their hours were cut back. And I think that's generally where my eyes sort of opened up. You know, if I'm being honest, um, and I tend not to be anything but that, I grew up in a pretty privileged background and certainly many of the people who surrounded me who I went to elementary and high school with were even more privileged than I was there really wasn't that much of a give and take with people who weren't from a well-off background and even if Dartmouth was a place where certainly the average student was better off than the average American there was a wider array of students and I think for the first time I know this kind of sounds ridiculous I got to see people at least interact and become friendly with people who really could would feel the strain when, say, the bubble burst. So in in the aftermath of that, and you go into this world of politics and writing, how did you feel about hearing these stories about, you know, middle-class disgruntled folks? And it would show up in some of the polling, but maybe not to the extent that we really understood in, in the primaries. But you see the rise of Bernie Sanders. You see the rise of Donald Trump, these populist movements. How did you experience that in terms of, you know, kind of balancing that with the fact like you don't, you don't love the financial markets or whatever, but do you, did you have a sense of like the left-behind quality? You know, I think that this is the most interesting Thing that occurred this year is that this was a primary season and a general election was that perhaps was not fought along ideological grounds on the left right as much as we're used to 
And that left people like myself with a giant sort of missing gap to understand what was occurring because things weren't developing in the ways that we were used to seeing. And the way that they were developing were was in the haves and the have-nots, so the people who perhaps had but perhaps feared being a have-not. And I think that left us open to not recognizing how strong the movement would be for a Bernie Sanders or how strong the movement would be for a Donald Trump, people who were talking to these financial concerns that a lot of voters had. And so I do think the fact that I was in New York, the fact that I had grown up in a sort of a group that was more privileged did in fact leave me open. I think it left a lot of people open because the normal factors that we looked to didn't tell us what was going on. And then the thing that would, we weren't experiencing ourselves. And and in polling, though, when, you know, we don't have a deep dive, we have what's important to you, the economy, right? Sure. But we don't go, is there a deeper question than that, that, that maybe you would want asked if you were conduct, creating a poll yourself? I think, you know, Look, there are certain questions that do get at that more, you know, are you worried about your family's financial future? Do you think your family's going to be better off in four to 10 years, four, five, six, seven, you know, up to 10 years? Do you think your things are worse off than they were four, five, so on and so forth? I think questions like that generally get to it more. Obviously, we have the right direction, wrong track question, which sort of gets at that, but perhaps not as well. I mean, we always tend to think we're on the wrong track, right? Uh, but I think that those types of questions get at that more than do you think the economy is an you know important factor in your vote? Yeah, but that doesn't it could be an important factor because you think the economy is improving. Right. What we're really trying to get at and understand is why people are voting the way that they are doing and what is motivating them to do that. And if you were to go back and look at uh, sort of the year in review of 2016. And, and, and I they, do that at the end of every year with my Emea Copa column. And, and you're willing to do that, that self-reflection, which I love. Um, what is it that, um, that you really understood to be something that kind of shook your foundation of your previously conceived notions? I think the thing that really sh- shook me and it was more on the Republican side than the Democratic side, and perhaps tipped me off that something was occurring that wasn't in the usual patterns, was the fact that Donald Trump was able to win Republican primaries with very minimal support from the quote-unquote establishment or party actors. If you go back to primaries since 1980, what you generally see on both the Democratic and the Republican side is the candidate who ultimately emerges as the nominee has support from elected officials, governors, members of Congress. And although Donald Trump ended up picking up a little support from those groups, he really didn't pick up a lot of support at all, certainly much less support than we were used to seeing. And I think that that perhaps gave us an understanding that some of the old rules that had applied in politics no longer applied and that people really were willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. You've been listening to my interview with Harry Enten. He's the senior political writer and analyst at 538. This guy's immersed in numbers and statistics all day long. And you know what? I think that a lot of people, when they look at their own financial lives, they immerse themselves in numbers and statistics. But they get freaked out when something out of the blue occurs and then they get off that strategy. Well, you know what? That's why I'm so happy that Betterment is the sponsor of this podcast. Betterment's the smarter way to invest your money. I came to the passive investing altar about halfway through my 30-year career in financial services. I started as a trader. I became a certified financial planner. And through all those years, I saw so many different approaches to investing, people thinking they had some magical answer. And yet so few were willing to admit that 
it is the passive approach to investing that makes the most sense. That's why I'm so happy that Betterment is the sponsor of this podcast, because they really do walk the walk and they talk the talk. Betterment relies on time-tested investing principles. Basically, they know that based on data, there is no consistent way to beat the market over the long term with active trading. They apply those principles with transparency and with ease of use. They use great technology and focus on keeping your fees and your taxes lower. That's so much more important than figuring out how you're going to beat the market, because guess what? You're not going to. And here's something refreshing. Betterman cares that you actually reach your financial goals. That's why they keep their fees so low. See how Betterment can help you today. Better Off listeners can get one month managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Better Off. And now back to our interview with Harry Enten, the senior political writer and analyst at 538. What do you take from like the the statistical presentation of facts? For example, what I, I report on CBS News and what do you need me to say more of to the public so they understand polling better? Because I think the big issue is uh, like I don't do this. I'm not a political reporter, but like margin of error. I don't think people kind of get margin of error. Can you first of all, first give us a quick explanation and, and, and should we be using that? caveat in every single polling analysis that we're doing? Well, I would argue we should be even using more caveats. Um, there, There's the margin of error, which is the basic idea that 95% of the time, if we have a true understanding or reading of the population, that Hillary Clinton's percentage of the vote will fall between X and Y. But here's the thing. We often don't get a perfect reading of the population. There's sampling error. There is non-response bias. There are all these errors that are on top of the margin of error that are much more difficult to quantify. And therefore, in a lot of instances, we don't even try to quantify them. And so we know from the past that the margin of error actually understates the average error or the 95% confidence interval of where polls actually match up relative to the results. And I think that that is something that needs to be said over and over and over again, that look, these polls are only as good as the sample that they are. And if we are missing a group of voters, then our polls are going to could have the potential to be way off. And more than that, just as a general sort of, you know, hint to the American public or, you know, a guideline in the American public is that polls are not perfect. They are merely a tool. Polls can be off. And there's a reason why we hold elections. Otherwise, we just hold polls and that'd be the end of it. And I think that this year in particular, even if the errors, perhaps in terms of the you know, how many points they were off weren't as large as in prior years in terms of overturning the results or changing the results of who won and who lost. They were great enough to do that. I think that that perhaps is a great lesson going forward and understanding that polls are not perfect. Okay. What if I told you you could only do statistical analysis of one topic? Here's your three choices. Mm. Sports, Mm -hmm. weather, Mm -hmm. politics. Rank them. Well... I, I, I can say that I only went to camp. Well, actually, no, that's not true. I went to baseball camp, too. I never went to politics camp. There's no such thing as polling camp. I bet there will be now. I bet there will be now. <laughs> Hold on a second. Let's get the boy on the phone. We'll get, we'll get a new business started there. Uh, you know, I think the most joy I get is when a snowstorm actually does occur. And last year, when there was the record-breaking snow in New York City, I can't explain to you in words how exuberant I truly was. 
And as I watched it curve and realized, oh my God, this is really happening. So let me ask you this. We like to end each interview with um, a a money-ish question. Hmm. What's the worst money mistake you have made in your young life? Oh, this is the easiest answer ever. My father used to love to ask me, would ask me, what stock should I invest in? He would invest, you know, maybe a few hundred shares or whatever. And this was in the late 90s. And my father had no idea how to use computers at all, never learned how to. Um, we tried giving him an iPad. And I, I cannot repeat what he watched on that iPad. <laughs> um, but he was very upset when we gave the iPad away. And... Uh, But I wanted to invest in a tech stock of a sort, and I said, let's invest in Microsoft. I could have easily invested in Apple, you idiot. It was worth nothing at the time. I'd be cruising along. I'd be, oh, my God, I'd be taking a limo here. You would own the 538 blog. You would would own ABC. You would own Disney. I, I could own Disney. Do you look back on that and say, oh, what could have been, or do you really not care? I mean, obviously, you look back on certain things of what could have been, but at the end of the day, the person who's looking in the past is the person who's stuck in the past. So uh, I am I'm at ease with myself. Harry Enten, senior political writer or analyst or all-around great guy. Just don't call me late for supper. Oh, God, you really are like an old Jewish man. It's hysterical. Um, I won't call you the other name, but I'm going to tell you that this has been an absolute delight. I cannot thank you enough. I I really, I think you do amazing work. You break down statistics in a way that I think most people can absorb it. And we are just so psyched that you were able to join us here on Better Off. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show, the Better Off Question of the Week. Now remember, if you want to reach us, all you have to do is shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com and we're happy to answer it. And this is a first because it's our first caller. We've got Kelly on the line. Kelly, where do you live? In Virginia. Oh, very nice. And I'm very excited because you know what? You are the number one first listener call on the Better Off podcast. So congratulations. Uh, we don't have T-shirts or anything yet, but I just want to congratulate you anyway. You, you feel like you can carry this mantle? I hope so. Oh, my God. It's such pressure. No, it's going to be fantastic. Tell me what is on your mind and how we might be able to help you out. Well, I have about $60,000 um, between my savings account and three CDs. Mm-hmm. And... I want to figure out something better to do with it. Okay. I love this. This is a great problem. Oh, darn it. I have too much money, too much cash. (laughs) Tell us about yourself. How old are you? I'm 40. Okay. Married, single, any kids? What's going on? I'm single. I have no debt and I have no kids. You know what? I noticed that people have no kids and no debt tend to have a lot of savings. Now, I'm not saying making a judgment there. I'm just saying that's it. Okay. Um, how about uh, your job? What do you do for a living? Um, I work for the state, mm-hmm. and it, I think it's pretty secure. It's it's a newer job for me, so that's great. Mm-hmm. And do you have a retirement plan through the state, a 457 plan or a 403b? I have a 403b. Okay, and. How much are you contributing to that, uh, your, your part of it, not what they put in for you? About 10%. That's great. You feeling good about that? I do. And your income, ballpark, about how much do you make? 
About $76,000 a year. Okay. So, I mean, two things that just strike me right off the bat, which is, you know, you are saving a bunch of money outside of retirement, but you're not maxing out your retirement plan right now. Is there a reason for that? Or is that just, in other words, is there some concept that you're having that you want to have some money that's in tax deferred and non-tax deferred? Or is that just you haven't popped up that percentage yet? Ultimately, I haven't popped it up. Um, the state does match me 8.5%. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. And so I part of me feels like I don't necessarily need to max it out. On the other hand, you are accumulating a whole bunch of money in cash. I mean, you're a very good saver. So maybe we would split the difference and say that if you don't want to put money in a 403B, maybe one thing to consider, and again, it it may be that like for this minute, you're in a position where you can actually afford to do a lot of different things. But Mm -hmm. I would love to see you get that percentage up. You know, frankly, 15% would be good. Obviously, the the most that you can put in is $18,000 this year. So that would be terrific. So I think eventually that's where I'd like you to go. But let's get back to this issue about the money that's in savings and in CDs, because in in many respects, this is obviously money that there is some emergency fund part of this. But mm-hmm. what portion of this would you say is available to do something with? A 40000 Okay. I'd like to keep about 20000 Okay, good. I mean, look, I love an emergency reserve fund. I really do. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people who think you should just keep everything invested. I'm just too wimpy for that. I like to sleep at night, so, I, you know, I can huddle up to my 0.32% or whatever horrible amount that I'm getting. I mean, you could probably get more out of your savings, but I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I hope not to have to use it, but you never know. Exactly. I know. That's like a, it's very good to be a nervous Nelly when it comes to these aspects of your financial life. You know, it's really good. Um, and in in terms of the retirement account outside, you said this is a fairly new job. Are there other retirement accounts that you have floating around? Yeah, I have about a hundred and or two hundred and sixty thousand dollars in my retirement. Oh, that's kind of awesome. Fantastic. And where is that? Is that an old plans or did you roll that over after you left your old employer? I rolled it over. And where is it now? Is it invested in a regular IRA rollover or did you convert it into a Roth? A regular. Okay, got IRA it. Rollover. Mm-hmm. And I presume that because you are a listener of this type of podcast that you are mm-hmm. being very clear about keeping your fees low and not mucking around with your portfolio too much, correct? That's right. That was a leading question, I think, if you're a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a couple of ideas about the 40 grand. And you said you're debt free. So, you know, look, when for everyone listening, a a lot of people will say to me, like, you know, uh, where do I start? Again, I presume that you've got the big three covered, which is you've got your debt paid down, you've got your emergency reserve established, and you're using your retirement account. You know, again, I wouldn't mind for you, Kelly, to put a little bit more into that retirement account, get you up to the $18,000 limit. But you do have $40,000 that's available right now. And there's a couple of things that come to mind. Number one, you can open up a Roth IRA. I actually do have a Roth, and I I max it out every year. So you're maxing out your Roth, but you're not maxing out your 403B. So then definitely I want you to max out the 403B. I'm going back on my word here. No, I'm going back. Just max that out. Get that maxed out. Then we've got forty grand to start with. And you know what? Are you into investing? Do you like to invest? What's your um, disposition when it comes to this? Well, I just feel like I get lost when I read about investing. Mm-hmm. 
I just get really lost and can't figure out what the right thing to do is. Okay, that's uh, and and yet you know you look at somebody who's in your situation, forty years old with you know over a quarter of a million dollars saved, and I would say you're not lost, honey. You are found. You are you have done a great job. You really have. You've done a great job. Look, I think that many people are in your situation. So um, I'm, I'm going to say that you may be kind of a perfect candidate for um, considering a real passive approach to investing, meaning mm-hmm. that would be either you kind of go to a big index fund portfolio where the money is you put on autopilot, essentially, you know, pick three funds, make it a low cost index fund and don't touch it. Or consider using a robo-advisor like our sponsor, Betterment, and you go there and you fill out a risk assessment questionnaire and you do some work. And, and you know, I think especially in your case, because this is a non-retirement account, um, some of the aspects of using a, a robo that is very concentrated on minimizing tax liability would be helpful to you. Look, it's not the panacea. You're not going to you're going to have ups, you're going to have downs. But if you say that you're getting lost and you don't kind of like doing it, then that kind of a platform could actually be really good for you. And again, there's lots of different ways to skin the cat. I just suggest it as a possibility. And I also think that for someone in your situation, knowing that the long term strategy is just a passive nuts and bolts approach where the market's going to do the the heavy lifting and you get to have your risk considered is something that could be worthwhile to consider for you. That is exactly what I want to do. That is exactly. Put me in. I'm in. <laughs> get get going. No, you know it's and, and and I will also just make sure a couple of other things just to round out your big, you know, picture financial stuff. You know, look, you you said you're single. Are you um are you with someone? Yep, I'm in a relationship. Okay. We live together. And have you guys, I mean, how long have you been together? Look at this, so personal. Uh, 11 years. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so yeah. you're to, you're like, my producer Mark is this guy. Like, he's he's Mr. Serial Monogamy, but I'm not, he's like, <laughs> I'm trying to convince him to get married only because I want him to have a wedding that I can dance at. Um, I, have you guys done wills? No. So, I mean, this is kind of this weird thing because if you're not married... And, you know, this is this is like why marriage equality in the LGBT community was sort of a big deal, because when you're not married, the law doesn't actually protect you when it comes to estate planning. Mm-hmm. So one thing I would consider, you know, I can burn up your this cash in like two minutes, right, is to maybe go think about drafting a will and a durable power of attorney and a health care proxy, not because I think anything bad is going to happen, but I think that that's a really smart thing for you to do, especially when you are not married, because there is no legal structure that will protect your honey if something happened to you and vice versa. Sure. All right. So go forth, do some estate planning, max out your retirement plan, keep maxing out your Roth and get your money to work. How's that? Sounds great. Thank you so much for calling, Kelly. Really appreciate it. Thank you, and congratulations on the new podcast. Thanks. Take care. Don't forget, there's a new episode of the Better Off Podcast every Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag Better Off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. 
That's Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week. <laughs>